0: when we first opened our door, we wanted to be different. In that, I mean, we wanted to be an agency that valued long-term relationships. That was our why, we wanted to be the company that stood out, we weren't transactional.
1: Welcome to The Resilient Recruiter. This is your host, Mark Whitby. My guest today is Mark Smith. Mark is the Group Managing Director of people to people an Australian recruitment company with 110 staff in eight offices, winner or finalist in 14 different industry awards. This was a really fun conversation. If you have ambitions to scale your recruitment business, then you're gonna really enjoy this episode. Mark shares tons of value on everything from creating your company culture, staff training, automation and using technology to take over some routine tasks and give your recruitment consultants more time to focus on building relationships and generating revenue. Mark shares his biggest mistake which was still affecting his business until fairly recently. Plus he has some really excellent insights about crossing key milestones. For example getting from 25 staff where the owner is still A rainmaker and directly managing recruitment consultants to a team of 50 to 60 people with a management team in place. So the owner is freed up to focus on strategy and business improvement projects.
0: Excuse my beard. I'm feeling uh, the whole 25 days that I've been uh, on holidays. I uh, went on holidays on the 22nd of December. And it's a bit of a ritual for me not to shave during my break. And this is the longest holiday I've had since I left high school. So oh, um, fantastic! Um, yeah, it's a very um, a big break for me, actually, to be honest. So there you go.
1: Well, I actually like the beard. I would <laughs> vote to keep, say, leave the beard. But, um, but that actually points to uh, something which maybe we can talk about, which is you've built a, a very successful business that and you've got a management team in place, so that you, now you can actually take a holiday, right? And the business still operates successfully.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting journey to go on. To be honest, I mean, you'd always like to have uh, a situation where you've got the management team there ready to go. But there's a guy called Nigel Haas, and I probably you've probably heard of him. Uh, he does a he has a thing called Staffing Industry Metrics. He's been in the industry here in Australia for a very long time, and he always talks about the Valley of Death. So the valley of death is uh, a period of time in an organization's development uh, where they go from the most profitable time, which is around that 25 staff, uh, and where you have to build a management team up to around, so when you get up to about 50 to 60 staff. And so we went through that valley of death uh, a few years ago. So it is a nice... A situation to have right now where where we do actually have a management team, but um, what is it? There's an old saying that they say that you can um, delegate tasks, but not responsibility. So um, in a very uncertain marketplace right now, it's still a situation where I still feel the responsibility of the different uh, businesses, but um, at least I'm not having to do the the day to day tasks over this Christmas break, anyway.
1: Mark, this is going off on a bit of a tangent that I hadn't planned, but I want to hear yeah. more about this Valley of Death. Like what? What's that like for people to people and why do you describe it that way?
0: Well, because the most profitable time for a recruitment business is when you're at a point where between 12 and about 25 staff, where you are most productive. And it's a situation where the the owner can be both the, the rainmaker and the people around them without having to then build the business out to a point where you need scale. So that means that you are in a situation where you can exploit the business and get a, a very healthy return. But if you want greater returns than a healthy return, so if you wanted to scale your business, and then you have to go through the valley of death. And that means that you have to incur all of those costs that come along with building a business that is then scalable. Mm. Part of those costs is also the building of the management team. And I've seen it far too many times in other businesses where they've imported managers from other organizations, which I think is one of the things that I wanted to talk about today, really, uh, is that the part of our success is being able to develop our own people uh, over time. And in trying to import management into your organization, I think is a very difficult proposition. It can work on some occasions, but uh, it is our experience that uh, most of our management team is is homegrown.
1: That's fantastic. And I agree 100%. When you bring people in from other recruitment companies, then they come from a different culture to yours, which can work at the consultant level, assuming they're flexible, they're open-minded, they're eager to learn, they're willing to take on board your way of doing things, your processes, your systems, your values, and so on. Mm. But if you bring someone in at a, in a leadership role for another business, then their impact on the rest of the business is magnified, right? And so... Any culture clash there is can have a really serious effect. I've seen that happen with businesses, and, and they've lost key staff members as a result and had a sort of taken a backward step. Yes,
0: indeed. I've seen it happen far too many times. Another interesting story there that when we're talking about culture too, that was uh, when, when we got uh, did get through the valley of death and we had a management team in place. Then, then you face the next hurdle, which was really a situation where you were asking yourself, um, is the culture in Brisbane the same as the culture in Melbourne across the business? And we weren't entirely sure. So when, when we first started, well, there were five of us in a room, you knew what the culture was because we were all there. We were the business. And even when we got up to about 15 or 20 people, the culture was uh, not articulated in any way, but it was visible and many people understood what it was. So then I was in a situation where I would go from office to office and you go, "Well, is it really the same? How can we? And it sounds like, you know, a little bit of corporate bullshit bingo where you have to then think, well, do I need to have my values articulated? Do I need to write them down? And I was a little bit cynical about it, but I thought, no, it's time that we did this because I was really unsure as to whether the, the culture of people to people was universal across the different business units. And uh, we decided to actually go ahead and do it. Uh, we ran an exercise across the business and people then would came up with what our values were in each of the different offices. And I was surprised to see that they came out to be relatively the same. So the same words. They weren't exactly the same words, but in the end, it was, it, it was consistent, which gave me a, a real sense of satisfaction and relief, to be honest so I thought okay we've done that exercise it turned out well that well I don't really need to do anything more and a friend of mine in Brisbane we sat there having a coffee and she goes, said Mark whatever you do don't go ahead now and put up a PowerPoint presentation and say that's it you've done your values you don't need to do anything more she said you actually have to activate them you've got to actually put them inside the business and I'm really glad I took her advice and did that she's actually a sort of a human resources a professional from a, from larger corporates, and I suppose that she's had more experience with this type of thing. And so uh, we did. We, I, I got our market an outsized marketing company to come in and to put some visuals around it, and, and to come up with an acronym. And that's where we came up with our values, which is Stride S T I D E Stride, as if you're striding down the street. Yeah, and it's really worked for us. I mean, it's the reason why it's worked. And this is where I'm sort of looping back to the whole management piece. There is that you can manage against your values, so you can hire people against your values. Where instead of being it so intangible and it was in my head and you got a gut feel that you can actually say, well, these are our values. Do you adhere to these values? And it's pretty clear, you can you can get a sense of the people that you're bringing into the business. So, yeah, Stride and it's now activated to a point where people use it in their everyday language. And on the seventh of February this year, we've got our we bring everybody into uh, into Sydney to have our annual Stride Awards. Now, a little bit like the Brownlow Medal, you probably don't know what the Brownlow Medal is. It's Australian rules medal for the best player, but almost the best and fairest player. But uh, anyway, we won't go into that detail, but that's the image that you want.
1: I love it. Can we actually double click on this because it's really interesting. What I love about doing these interviews, Mark, is I get to learn from the best minds in the recruitment industry around the world. And you see some common themes, you know, coming to the surface. And this one of culture and values is is one of them. But you said something unique that I've not heard someone else say, which is activating the values And it sounds like it's really embedded in the business. Could you speak a little more about how you accomplish that?
0: Because once you write them down, you think, well, is that it? And you do and activate it. Again, it sounds a little bit bit like a commercial corporate bingo. But in practice, what it means is is it has to become part of the everyday lexicon. So how you do that in each business that you will depend. What we did was so at the end of each month, we have a, a sort of a national get together which is not an unusual thing where we talk about the wins and uh, uh, the performance of each of the different offices and and tell a few stories. It's always on a Friday night because you're always going to celebrate the financial wins. yeah. So the top billers, the situations where people are smashing their targets, et cetera. So what we did is that we asked each of the offices nominate somebody to be their stride winner for each month. So I've seen in other businesses where you might nominate somebody and they literally have a box in the corner and they put it put it on the piece of paper. And I don't think that's a bad idea, too. So you could live in the moment, you know, say, well, consultant day, you could say, well done, Johnny, you did a great job. You were, our values, by the way, are strength, teamwork, respect, integrity, drive and enterprise. So you say, well, you're really living the values. You showed enterprise there in, in negotiating that deal or you had some real resilience or strength. The reason I use resilience is that was the original word that the marketing guys said, no way, that doesn't work. We can't get an acronym, so you've got to change resilience (laughs) to strength. That's why we we did that. You've shown real strength today in whatever behaviour and you nominate somebody. So we do that electronically, and then everybody shares that uh, once a month. And then all of those nominations that come through, that's how we choose the national stride winner for the whole company in the awards at the end of the year. That's just one way of actually putting it into place. Other ways uh, in a more practical sense, when somebody is onboarded, they get some merch which has stride on it, so they ask the question, "What does that mean?" and they get then they start to understand what those values are, Old school stuff like uh, posters on the wall, etc as well. I love it. There's a whole series of different ways to do it. You've got to work out what works best for your office and for your business. but the thing is it has to then become part of the general conversation. So everybody knows what Stride is now, because it's everywhere. You can physically see it and you can hear it in the conversations that people are
1: having. I love it. I love it. It's interesting. I worked very closely with an organization over here in Europe who grew from 15 people to 150 people. And we did a similar thing with the the values exercise, got everyone involved in identifying what those were. They created an acronym as well for them, which profess. And then they really incorporated those values into the fabric of the business but something i'd like to ask you mark is i believe in this 100 and for those who think it is corporate bs how do you take something that's sort of intangible like a, a word say strength by the way i'm pleased that uh, resilience was one of your values because that's the name of my podcast so we have values in common there So you take something intangible. You mentioned that you hire on your values and then obviously people get nominated. But how do you evaluate the extent to which someone either shares the values at the interview stage or embodies the values at the award stage? I mean, they're like competencies, I suppose,
0: in a really simple way. So if you're interviewing against them, you interview against those competencies. So strength, for example. So there's nothing more complicated than that. In a practical sense, when you're on the floor and people are uh, doing business, and somebody doesn't demonstrate those values, well, you can pull them aside and you can have a conversation with them and say, listen, you're completely aware of what our values yeah. are and you're not living those values and then you can manage against it. Now, we didn't have that and we were in a situation where, and this is one of the biggest lessons that I've learned or failures is that I've, in uh, our 15 years, uh, the biggest mistake I made was that I let some top billers who were not living our values stay within the business far too long mm. and because I was greedy. Basically, And I was looking for the financial return, which was a very short-term view, but caused me a lot of pain over a number of years. And we're now just coming through the other side now. That is an intangible hit to the business in that it affected the culture. That's where a lot of the whole values conversation came from, is that we can then leverage those values and then manage the culture internally. And again, it sounds a little bit like, you know, really, you know, I'm in recruitment. We're about making placements and getting a financial return. I get that. That's the background that I come from. But if you're going to scale your business, you have to be able to have a situation where you can articulate your values to somebody that's 4,000 kilometres away in Perth. Uh, they're not sitting in the same room with you. And just back to the activation, the marketing side, I think the way to think of it in your head is this is the internal brand of the organisation versus the external brand. So we have people-to-people is the external brand and it has a, a voice and the way it communicates out in the world. And then internally, our brand is Stride. Stride is the brand internally. So, and I got that from the marketing guys that worked with us. So we created a whole set of marketing guidelines for Stride internally. And so from an owner's perspective, you could say, well, okay, how am I going to manage the internal brand of your organization as effectively as you manage the external brand of your organization.
1: Interesting. I want to circle back to something you said, which I think will resonate for a lot of people. And that is saying goodbye to big billers who are not working in accordance with your your values. Because that, I think, happens a lot. But people aren't brave enough to let go of those individuals. I don't think it's a question of greed. I think it's a fear of, can I afford to take the hit and lose that revenue out of the business for the sake of an ideal
0: yeah it hurts financially it hurts personally too these are people who have come a long way with you if they're successful with you then it hurts on a personal level when uh, you see uh, people who have been a part of the organization and doing well and then make some silly mistakes or start living out or believing that they are indispensable and then the reality is that they're not and from an owner's perspective if they're getting to that point then in the long run it's better for you and your business and for what I mean by your business, not just financially, I'm talking about the other people inside the business, mm-hmm. the other consultants that are there. Uh, they need to see that you, they know, by the way, they know for sure that uh, somebody is not living the values or that they seem to be getting away with it. So they're looking to you as a leader to take action. And the biggest surprise that I got when, uh, when I've had this happen about two or three times over the last uh, last few years is that it's always a surprise when people say, oh, I was waiting when that was going to happen mm. uh, because they're expecting you to take action because that's your job. You as the, the leader then needs to to take action based on your values. And But the thing is that a lot of the people won't even tell you. That's the worst thing about it. If people... Have an awareness of what those values are and that they can see that success is not only defined by the number of dollars or pounds that you put up on the, on the board, that instead success can be measured in other ways through relationships externally with your clients, not just measured through financial gain, but maybe the longevity of those uh, relationships uh, and also the, the values that you're representing in the organisation. The back office is often left out of these conversations too. They're always told that they're always second to the top billers in organizations. So again, if you're going to scale your business, you need to have an effective back office, and that back office needs to feel part of the business just as as much as your top biller does.
1: How do you do that, though? Because you know so much of the sort of life of a recruitment business is focused on selling, right, and generating that uh, fee income. So how do you make the backups feel as much part of the team? We went through
0: a bit of an exercise where we separated. So the way we run our business is that we have a shared services team. So we call them inside. So the inside shared services team operate almost as a separate business in many ways. Mm -hmm. So their customers are the other branches. Ah, okay. So they get measured on satisfaction of the service that they're providing to the branches. And secondly, the values too. So they can be rewarded by living the values because the values of of uh, strength and teamwork and respect, integrity, drive and enterprise are not limited to those in the front office. They are those also in the back office as well. And you communicate with those guys that way as well.
1: Interesting. Mark, we sort of dove into it. So I didn't properly set the scene here probably are aware, the very first episode of The Resilient Recruiter, I had Greg Savage as the guest, and I asked Greg who else I should interview, and he recommended you, so that's why we're having this conversation. I believe you guys worked together at Recruitment Solutions, and then he's somehow involved with people to people as well. What is the history with Greg?
0: Yeah, so my history with Greg is that it's been on a bit of an evolution, really, I suppose. Um, I was interviewed by Greg and started in the recruitment industry in 1994. Okay. I was a staff member. I worked for him as a consultant in Sydney and in Brisbane and other offices. And then over time, I suppose we were working together. I, I won't go into my CV, but to cut a long story short, the next phase of our relationship was that then he invested in People to People. So he was a, a shareholder and investor, People to People, along with myself, uh, Manda and uh, Manda and Simon Gressier, and we opened People to People in February two thousand and five. Now he's more of an advisor. So he's still actively involved in people-to-people, all the different branches. The way we've structured is that we have different entities in different states. So they have shareholders, and I have minority shareholders in each of those states, which is in a whole other conversation about motivating remote managers and keeping those people incentivized. Sounds counterintuitive to have minority shareholders in in different, because it's a, isn't that a nightmare? You're not going to make as much money. The reality is that it actually incentivizes people on a whole different level. So Greg's uh, helped us with that. Uh, I think you've actually uh, had a conversation with Erin Devlin in Melbourne.
1: Great conversation with Erin. She's, uh, she's a very dynamic and interesting person.
0: Oh, she's a dynamo. Absolutely. She's got a very interesting history too, in terms of high performance going from Australian ballet and uh, and the like. And now She's managing director for Victoria for us. So, uh, and Greg was actively involved there, advising Aaron and helping us grow that business in in Victoria as well. Well, the evolution with Greg is: I was an employee, then he was an investor, and now he's an advisor. Awesome. So, um, yeah, I speak to him on a very regular basis. Yeah, so.
1: he's a great guy to have as an advisor. I pick his brains whenever I get the opportunity. So, but this is really about your success mark and and the success of people to people so i understand you have 110 staff in eight offices the company's been a finalist or a winner in 14 different recruitment industry awards now you've touched on some elements of this already but i'd like to just take a deep dive now into what do you attribute your success and
0: it's hard i mean there's no one there's no, no secret formula sure it's hard work the things that I think that have really set us up to to be successful over the years and to get the growth that we've had is that we had to grow our own people over the years. And I think that has really put us in good stead. And we've talked about culture as well. The longevity of our staff and, and maintaining our staff has really helped us a lot as well. So it was really came out of a necessity rather than any sort of planned uh, situation. So when we first set up, there were five of us in a room. It was 2005. The market was quite good back then. As we're scaling up to, you know, the best of times in seven and eight, and then the GFC, as we call it in Australia, happened.
1: GFC is because I've only ever heard that term from Australians. So that is the global financial crisis, which you know was the big recession.
0: We didn't actually have a recession, but uh, we had a slowdown for sure. And and, uh, some of our competitors removed forty percent of their consulting staff. So it was still a downturn. Don't get me wrong, but certainly we didn't. The economy didn't go into recession. But it was out of necessity. We could not attract experienced consultants to people to people. Why would they want to join a startup? That sounds like a lot of hard work. The market was really good. Why don't I go to an organization that is already established? So we found it extraordinarily difficult to hire in people externally. So that meant through necessity that we had to build our own people. That's really as a foundation stone for our success by building our own people. That meant that we put into place processes for training, And also that meant that the customer experience also was uh, the same. So you weren't bringing in baggage from other agencies, for example. You weren't having to teach people to do something in a different way. Uh, They were doing it our way. The second reason that we've had some success is longevity of our staff. We have a thing called a longevity lunch, actually. So out of that 110 staff, we've got about 35 of them have been with the business over five years. Don't get me wrong here, Mark. We still have staff turnover. But by utilising the para-consulting scheme, it depends on the individual, might be three, six, nine or 12 months, depending on their individual case, the market that they're in, the amount of experience they've had, life experience, et cetera, and their propensity to be a recruitment consultant. What that means is that we don't put them out there to be client-facing until we basically know that they're going to be good at what they do. So we still have staff turnover and quite high staff turnover, there's no exception there. But it's in our para-consultant before they become client-facing. So once somebody becomes client-facing, we tend to keep our people. And then the absolute worst time to lose somebody is between two to three years. So you want to keep people there. And so that's why I'm quite proud of the fact that we're you know we're over 30, 37, I think it was. I can't remember the exact number. We're at the longevity lunch in June of 2019, which I'm very proud of. It means that those people are staying with us. And it's my favorite event. And the reason it's my favourite event is because I know that people are committed to the recruitment industry and they're committed to people to people. So you can let your hair down and you can know that these people are part of the family. That was our why. Uh, to quote Simon Sinek, we wanted to be different in the marketplace. In two thousand four five, when we were making the decision to go out, it was a good market. It wasn't a boom time, but there were lots of and uh, no disrespect. Well, you're Canadian, aren't you? Yeah, is that right? Correct. You're not, yeah, but you're living in you're living in Britain. And for all the POMs that are listening out there, that there, there, are, there are something like 70% of the recruiters in, in Sydney are English or Irish. I mean, it's outrageous. When we first opened our door, we wanted to be different. In that, I mean, we wanted to be an agency that valued long-term relationships. That was our why. We wanted to be the company that stood out. We weren't transactional. I mean, I recruited in London for a couple of years I know what it's like. The client's not there a long time, nor is the candidate, nor is the consultant. So it's all like fill the job, make the money, move on. And sure, that can work in Sydney. But I think if you wanted to be successful in the long term in a market like Sydney, as distinct from London or other other regional cities, um, then you've got to be about long term relationships. So that's why the longevity lunch and the 30 odd people that come along to that, That's a testament to what our why was. That was why we set up the business to be different. And it sort of
1: seems to have played out in the end. Excellent. I love it. That makes a lot of sense. You heard Mark talk about the importance of staff training and development in order to scale your recruitment company. The main barrier to making that happen, of course, is time, management time. You know, owners say to me, Mark, I agree on the importance of staff learning and development. I just don't have time to put all that stuff in place. If you've ever felt that way, I've got great news for you. My business partner, Mike Walmsley, and I have created a done-for-you turnkey training platform. It's a complete learning management system, LMS, which helps you to get new recruiters profitable quickly and also increase the billings of your existing team members while significantly reducing the management time required for training and development. This is a white label product, so your branding and and color scheme would go into the portal. You can also fully customize the content so that it's conveying exactly the right message that is consistent with your company culture and values. You can upload your own training videos or you can use our ready-made training courses and modules. We have over 400 training resources, 150 hours of video content from 40 different speakers at all levels, recruiter, manager, director. You can even create complete career development plans for each employee directly in the LMS. And the most exciting thing or innovative thing we've done with this is an action tracker with automatic email reminders. I know from having been in the training business since 2001 that the main place that training falls down, even if the training is excellent, is lack of follow-up and lack of implementation. So we handle that for you. The learner puts their own action plan directly into the system. Every single action plan, action item is recorded. There's a deadline assigned. And then the learner is reminded automatically by email to complete that action and they need to log in to switch off those reminders once the task has been completed so that you know you're gonna get the full ROI from your investment in training. If you'd like to get a free 14-day trial then all you need to do is request a demo and we'll get on a, a video call together and I can walk you through the platform show you how it works and arrange login credentials for you so you can go in and explore the content for yourself. Just get in touch with me, mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Let me know you're interested in the LMS learning management system. That's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. This is perfect for busy billing managers who understand the importance of learning development, but just don't have time to create all the training from scratch. So you mentioned two really important things there. One was in terms of keys to the success of people to people, one was developing your own people and the second is holding on to them and having that longevity. So if I can just address the first issue first, and I think any company that is planning to scale does need to have a really effective learning and development program in place because the market of experienced consultants, even if you could attract them, to come work for you is finite, right? And of all the experienced consultants out there, how many of them would you want to hire that they have the right values, for example, or that they're going to be a fit for your culture and they're, you know, high performers, that's a much smaller number, right? And so then of the people who you want to hire, who have compatible values, who'll fit your culture, who are high performing and who are at a point in their career that they're ready for a change, it's just not a big enough number of people that you could really scale your firm.
0: Every single billing manager out there should have a list of potential hires of their competitors out. That's a given, yeah? But you're not going to fill a room. So let's say you're in a high growth phase and you need five new consultants. Now, you're not going to be able to find those people that quickly. What happens if somebody needs to leave? Their girlfriend, boyfriend is going to go travel overseas or something like that. Then suddenly you need you need succession planning as well where well, you can't rely on that list to then go out and find somebody because you now have a need. You've got to have succession planning, and that's why the power consulting scheme and having somebody ready to go and to step up set us up for a consistent client experience, even if, so, if we did have some unexpected turnover. Now, I can almost hear the squealing at the other end, but I'm too busy filling jobs. I've got clients. I mean, I've got all this work that I need to do. When am I going to find the time to be training some newbies out there, somebody who's never done recruitment for? It was lucky for us that I enjoyed that. You know, I was a good consultant, but I was never a sensational one. But I was able to train people to in the basics to get them going. If in your business you don't have, if that's not you, there's bound to be somebody in your business that is that person who wants to be able to train the individuals. The other way to think of it as well is if you've got a senior consultant. Who maybe doesn't want to be a manager or does want to be a manager, you just, it doesn't really matter. But in my experience, it tended to be the ones that were good billing consultants, but they didn't really want to have management responsibility. You would give them a power consultant, a support person. Some organizations, they might call them researchers or they might call them, you know, an assistant, et cetera. We never had any administrative staff at People to People, we just didn't. They were always a recruitment consultant or training to be a recruitment consultant. But then you might have some owners who go, well, hey, that's two people. On one desk, do I have to adjust you know, thresholds and commission schemes? My answer to that question is no, you don't, because the price of the person who's, say, the senior consultant who's training that junior consultant, the price that they're paying is that they should be aware or have an awareness that that support person is going to become a full 360 recruiter sometime soon, 3, six, nine, 12 months, and then they will be back to square one and they'll have to train somebody else coming through automatically you're building in organic growth into your organisation and your people are training the new people coming through. The hurdles that you often hear is is that the senior consultants with their para-consultants, they want to hire administrators and you can't allow them to do that. You have to find the time in your organisation to do the training so that they can then progress on naturally through time. When we were five people in a room, we're not like Hayes, the behemoth that has an, a huge training department and has graduate intakes every every three to six months, etc. We didn't have that scale to do that. But what you can do it is on a, on a minimal basis. Yeah,
1: you're saying para consultant, almost like paralegal. Correct. So, how does that actually work?
0: So you go out and you're
1: looking for a trainee consultant or a
0: para-consultant. The ideal candidate here is, and we have experimented with graduates, so we we have had grad schemes in the past to have limited success, but where we've had most success is the para-consultants are somebody who's probably done a degree or some post-high school course, et cetera. So they've got that extra little bit of education. Not always the case, but that's generally my experience. But then they've gone out and they've been in, in the world, so... They've got one or two years worth of experience, but they're not satisfied. They've got that X factor. They talk too much. They've got some leadership, extracurricular, et cetera. Everyone knows the, the consultants, the potential consultants there. So you bring that person in and instead of putting them through so some structured thing like Hayes does, because you don't have that infrastructure, what you do is you assign them to a senior consultant. So sometimes we'd even assign them to two consultants. That's not always ideal, but as somebody who's gone off on a full functioning desk You assign them to that person. You don't adjust the the Senior Consultants Commission or anything like that. You say you will get the support if you train this person. Not all of the training lands with the Senior Consultant. That's where I used to step in and then do other things. So I would teach them how to do an interview, and when they're getting ready to move to 360, I'd teach them how to make the marketing calls and what to say in a visit and all all of the regular stuff that uh, you would do. But so what you're doing there is you have automatically – every three, six, nine months, you've got people who are moving up and into three, uh, sixteen 360 consulting. Now, on occasions, they don't work out. They're obvious they're not going to be right for, as a recruiter. So then you have to remove them from the business and then you get somebody else in. But you remove them from the business before they become client-facing, before they pick up the phone and do the marketing, etc. cetera.
1: You won't have seen necessarily them doing the full job and performing at a higher level. So what's the criteria for someone that's going to make it and become part of the people-to-people brand. Yeah.
0: I mean, look, I wish I could be very fastidious about that. There is that X factor that comes into it and that we all know the gut feeling and uh, all those other intangibles there. But having somebody sit on the desk for three to six months, you will know more than if you're just hiring somebody in externally after they've done a psych test and a couple of interviews, you know for sure that they're ready to go. Or they will tell you, so you might think they're brilliant, but they just can't, they can't, I can't do this. And then they exclude themselves by deciding that this is not the career because no matter what you say to somebody, when they actually join the uh, the organisation and they get behind the, behind the door, they go, wow, this is not what I expected at all. And so um, they, they will exclude themselves. So, yeah, I don't have any hard and fast rule there, but uh, you're in a better position once you've got them on the desk for a little while to make that call.
1: So, Mark, the other thing I wanted to ask you is that, you seem to really embrace technology. And I wondered if you could tell me about Pete, the people to people chatbot. So,
0: Mark, I'm a nerd. It's fundamentally, that's the problem. Uh, all jokes aside, though, I think that the recruitment industry is constantly changing. P2P Pete is the, the latest first experiment that we've, we've put out there. I, uh, as, a, as a chatbot, and to try and improve our efficiency, that's really what it, what it all comes down to. Efficiency. And I prefer the word automation, really. So we're, I'm very much on a big automation gig at the moment. And P2P Pete is part of that. I'll tell you the story of where, how we first started using him as a chatbot. And the first place that we used him was on um, their website. So we had a situation where people would visit the website and we use live chat. So the little chat that would pop up at the bottom. And we would have human beings there ready to go. So some organisations would have them offshored, et cetera. We used to use the para-consultants. So the para-consultants would do on rotation, we'd be, sit there and have to be the person to answer the questions that are of randoms that just happened to be visiting the website. So good training for them, et cetera. So the number of chats that we were getting on a weekly basis on our website was between two and 300 chats. It was racking up to be about 40 to 50 hours worth of chat time. Wow, that's a lot. So now chatbots are not a new thing, but they really came online in 20, 2018, I think 2017, 2018. And that's when we got p 2 p Pete on our website. It wasn't anything too special, but we did have to teach it. It's really just a decision tree model, et cetera. But the efficiency game, we now get over 400 chats a week on the website. That could be people who are potential clients as well as candidates, etc. But only about thirty of them are transferred through to a live person. So most of the questions are: Do you have any jobs for me? Where do you have an office? I need to contact this person, etc. So Pete was able to handle those questions. So and over time, we were able to train it so that uh, so it, the conversations were more lifelike. So then it would. I mean, still, it's it's a chatbot, and we clearly state that it is a chatbot. We get more conversations now because people are more comfortable in a, in chatting to a chatbot than they are to a human being. So they, um, so we get more conversations, but it's more efficient because only thirty calls actually go through to a human being. So we don't need the para consultants to be wasting their time on conversations with people who we can't help, for example. So that's like pre joining us. Now we also have a chatbot. So before somebody comes in to interview. We send them out a message and the ability to have a chat with Pete. So what Pete's doing there is he's filling out the database. What are your salary expectations? Uh, when are you available to work? What type of work? All those sort of basic questions that you probably spend 10 minutes on in the interview. Well, Pete can ask those questions straight up, and then the consultant doesn't have to put that information into the system because the, the, basically it's doing it for you. So from an owner's perspective, there is a form. If at any point somebody has to fill out a form a form on a website, a form when they I've seen I've seen people still filling out handwritten forms when they come into an office which blows my mind but everywhere there's a form you can use a chatbot. So now we're moving on to more automation though so whereas if the system knows that for example so that's pre them working for us then they interview with us then afterwards so if they're working for us then we haven't actually got a chatbot in place but we're using a lot of triggers and SMS. We don't have your bank account details. Uh, what? So in Australia, we have a thing called a tax file number, so Inland Revenue Number, the equivalent or whatever in the UK is. So any of those administrative details that you might have uh, that don't have, well, you can use SMS and your system so to automate it and fills it fills in the details. So anybody who says that they're available for temporary work, for example, uh, then every Friday they get a text message saying, hey, are you available for temp work next week? Oh, you're not? Oh, okay, what date are you available? And it updates the system for us. All of those type of things. Now, look. So, a lot of smaller firms probably thinking, "Wow, where do I going to have the time to, to do that?" Uh, the thing is that some of the big guys now they've got whole departments that are doing this, and we've got to keep up. The way to think of it is that if you want to scale your business, every time you make a decision, this is what when we were growing, every time I made a decision, I made the decision based on, "Will this work if we have four offices? Will this work if we if we're three times the size?" So every time you make a decision, don't go for the lowest common denominator. Uh, make sure that you make the decision so that it's scalable into the future. And uh, automation in your back office means that you can have fewer people and scale your business without having to hire a whole bunch of people as well. So if you're hiring people, it's all client-facing. And things like chatbots and automation, those decisions can save you money in the long run. So it might be a little bit of expense up front. So if times are good, that's when you should be spending... So 2018, in my view, was one of the three best years in the last 25 in the recruitment industry in Australia. That was the time that we invested in some of this automation because you've got money to do it so that when the, when the downturn comes, you have got your skinnier in your back office so that you can spend more time in uh, winning new business.
1: Makes total sense. I love it. So in addition to Pete, the chatbot, is there another way that you guys are automating things at People to people
0: i um, exploring at the moment, so they call it programmatic automation. It's a bit of a nerd thing. Uh, they call them robots, but it's not really robots. It's where you have two systems that don't talk to each other, and then this, I think, a company called UiPath, which uh, enables you to get information from one system to another. So where this can be really handy is if you've got Let's say so in in Australia. Well, let me use an example here in New South Wales. So the New South Wales government spends something like two billion dollars on temporary staff, and so they sit there and they go, right, okay, we we use field glass, we use Beeline, we're the behemoth. You need to use our systems. Hmm. Okay, so I'm not going to be able to convince them to change their ways to just to fit my uh, my back office or my my recruitment team. So instead, I'm looking at this programmatic automation or these robots to be able to integrate their system with ours. so field glass which is one of the systems I have which is an SAP based system they want their temporary staff to use field glass. we then uh, use a robot to get the information from field glass and into our own system so that we can act quickly. I remember back when I was in recruiting in London years ago that you would get an email from a bank etc say here's a job so they've got their system imagine if you didn't have to enter that detail into your system that you could use a robot to do that automatically. So that's what this is all about. So it's to get improvements in time, wherever so really mundane, boring tasks. So if you then think about that in your back office as well, so that's where we're looking for efficiency gains because uh, where we're a supplier to New South Wales government, then we can then make sure that we comply with their systems and do it all their way but then get it into our into our system and be efficient in our back office by using a robot to do that. I love it. Another example is a, a visa check. So to do a visa check, you have to log into a website, type in the person's information, and then check their visa status. Or you can pay somebody to do that, Or why don't you get a robot to do it?
1: Brilliant. So have you just sat down and brainstormed? What are all the tasks that we're spending time on that a, a robot could do just as easily?
0: So anywhere where you've got two timesheet systems, so let's say you've got a big client that has their own internal system, then your consultants have to use that and you have to use ours. There's one example. There's something like a check is is another example as well. People apply for jobs from different platforms, for example, but you want to make sure that you sign them up to your own. Uh, So we use Volcanic is ours platform for our job board, etc., but we want to make sure that everybody signs up to job alerts on, on our Volcanic platform. But if they're applying through all the different sources, then you can use a robot to do that. So I get an application in and then you, the robot goes, oh, OK, there's an application. I'm just going to sign. They, they applied for an accounts payable job. I'm just going to sign them up now to an accounts payable job alert on Volcanic for us.
1: Ah, that's clever. Fantastic. So it's all about allowing the consultants to have more time focused on revenue generating activities. From a back office
0: perspective, think about receipting when money comes in, receipting it against your account system, for example, or creation of in, of temp invoices or whatever, et cetera. Now, there are whole systems that can do that, but if you end up having seven or eight different systems, they all have to talk to each other. There is a cost involved here. So normally what people would do is they'd hire somebody to do this stuff. So if you don't want to have to hire somebody, you might have to pay a little bit of money to get the robot set up up front, but in the long run, it'll be cheaper for you so your your back office costs will be less. Now if you're thinking well I what about I've got my consultants etc what it does is freeze up your consultants so they stop doing the admin tasks and pay them for what they're good at that x factor and building relationships with your clients as well.
1: Absolutely I can see that would be a lot more economical than hiring another back office person. Yeah
0: a lot of your front office staff too hide behind admin you know so take away that all of that mundane tasks can be taken away right there's there's other i mean chatbots and i've explored them but we haven't actually implemented them for example where they automatically send out a questionnaire or they have a conversation with people who apply for a job or people who are passive on your database so imagine you could send out there are two thousand people on your database that could possibly do this job why don't you get pete to go out there and have a conversation with them and then overnight then it comes back well here are five people who actually said yes they're interested that's a much more efficient way of time than actually getting the consultant to try and call 2,000 people or send out an email that they never look at. It's interesting. It'll be an interesting time. And uh, over the next little while, that's where I think uh, the recruitment industry is going to change a lot is uh, this automation piece.
1: Yeah, and it's actually more engaging, more interactive than just sending everyone a mass email saying, I've got a new job, are you interested kind of thing? Want to communicate through a conversation. These yeah.
0: Days. The other big challenge for recruiters coming out that I don't know the answer to this, is that when I first started, there are only one channel to win news business. And that channel sat on my desk and it was a phone. Now there are multiple channels to win business. And uh, Greg always used to quote to me, uh, religiously, calls equals visits equals jobs equals placements and equals a holiday that you're going to go on. <laughs> but the situation now is that the first bit is not true anymore. Calls do not automatically equal visits. It's so much harder. We've been measuring at people to people the number of calls to every visit that we do ever since we started, again, because I'm a bit of a nerd. That's almost doubled the number of calls that it takes to get a visit. But the reality is now is that they're multiple channels, social channels, email channels, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not always in the, in the hands of the consultant who have responsibility for it. So we've experimented also with the inside sales teams like software as a service as well to say, well, okay, to get to all the channels producing the leads and then they're qualified and given out to the consultants as well. That's had limited success. So there's a lot of challenges coming because of the multi-channels and the automation. They're the two biggest challenges that I think that are coming. I don't think we'll ever disappear, by the way, because people, the human element won't ever disappear. You're going to have highly skilled people who are able to convince people to make a
1: change. Absolutely. That's the bit which a robot is not going to be able to do is really understand someone's motivations, their career aspirations and, and sell them on how the client's opportunity is going to help them to avoid the bits they don't like and to achieve the parts that they do want. So, yeah, makes sense.
0: Yeah, the robot or the chatbot or whatever will be up. They're like the assistant saying, oh, yes, now I've got, I've got Mary on the phone for you, Mark. Yeah. Can you talk to them now? So all bringing them all together and actually so you can have informed conversations with people. And it's those informed conversations that we won't be able to copy, not in my lifetime anyway, not in the next 15 to 20 years, are we going to have a situation where we'll be replaced? Like, who knows beyond that? But, <laughs> but in the, so we don't, right now, you've got nothing to worry about. All you need to worry about is, are your margins healthy enough? And if your margins aren't too healthy and you've got a lot of low margin business, that's another big mistake I made too, by the way big clients, low margin, and then you destroys your cash flow. That, that was a big issue I had about three years ago. But if you've got that, then the only way you can keep that business is that you need to be efficient in your back office, and that's where automation and chatbots and all that sort of thing can help out as well.
1: Mark, I have a feeling that there's so much more we could discuss, so I hope you'll come back and talk to me again in the future. This has been fantastic.
0: Sure, sure.
1: I think you said, uh, what books am I reading?
0: Yeah. I think you uh, when you sent me your email, I was thinking, oh, God, this is a little bit embarrassing. I did revisit Who Moved My Cheese, okay. but I didn't read it. That's a, a classic. I, I, yeah, I listened to it on because I think there's a lot of uncertainty in 2020. I thought, well, it's been—I reckon it'd been a solid seven years since I'd read it. So I've got it on Audible, and I listened to it in the car as I was driving over the break, and it was good to get my refresher there. Of course, I've got to give Greg Savage's book a plug. So the Savage Truth. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am reading that's very really interesting. Uh, It's interesting for me because I know the people in it and I know the stories, so it's interesting to see them put down on paper. The other one, just on a fiction level, which I think – I'll just give this a plug out there – is about a startup, Bad Blood. That's right. Do you you know this story about about Silicon Valley startup? Thoranas, do you know the uh, the blood where the pin prick? It was the pin prick, and it was meant to be able to. You could oh test.
1: yeah, 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 it's yeah! I heard about fabulous.
0: that. Fabulous! I mean, it is unbelievably good. It's you just can't. How could this happen? So uh, yeah, there's a book out there by I think uh, he's a new John somebody, and he's a New Yorker reporter, and he's put the book together. But you won't put it down if you get that one as well. If you're an entrepreneur in your own recruitment business. Uh, it'll make you feel very small that someone's getting billions of dollars for something that is completely fake. Uh, it's an unbelievable story. So in Silicon Valley, so check it out if that's your your cup of tea.
1: All right. Well, thank you for sharing that, Mark, and I've really enjoyed speaking to you today. So uh, I'll look forward to the next time. No worries. Thanks, Mark. All the best. If you need anything else, let me you know. All right. Have a great day. Wow, that was terrific. If you enjoyed that episode as much as I did, then please consider subscribing so you get each episode of The Resilient Recruiter delivered straight to your phone every week. Also, you'd be doing me a tremendous favor if you would give this show a review on Apple Podcasts. I sincerely appreciate it. One more thing before you go, if you'd like to get the full written transcript of The Future of Recruitment with Greg Savage, that was episode number one of The Resilient Recruiter, if you recall, then it's available to download at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.